me up in your blankets You can forget about me Trade your shores for December And the snow for the sea Sleeping out of guest bedrooms with bags Long time no see, isn't it? This was recorded, just so you all know, uh, back in February of 2020. This guest, Simon, Simon Penrow, to be honest, I didn't really look much into it. it. I talked to him over email. He had reached out. He wasn't sure if he wanted to do Broken Silicon or Flyover States. And I said, well, you know what? It sounds like you want to talk a lot about industrialism, and there will be a bit of history in there, and maybe we'll get into some social issues, so why not just make this a Flyover States episode? And so I do apologize to Simon, who has his own YouTube channel. That is his name, Simon Penrow, for taking so long to get this out there. But you know what? Here, Here's the episode. We get into a lot of interesting discussions, you know, education between America and Sweden, uh, immigration, and most of the conversation, the coming Industrial Revolution, and how it could bring a resurgence of those smaller businesses once they're able to compete with the technology of larger firms. For some oversimplifying it, we have a lot of things we discuss, and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for coming on. I'll let you introduce yourself. Yeah, my name is Simon Penrow. I'm an expat living in Sweden, and I work in metal fabrication. Previously, I've worked in many different fields. Um, and the most recent, before my current position, was teaching. Today I'm going to be talking about the past, present, and future of industrial revolutions. And so, before we get into that, though, I do just have some general questions, kind of to frame things up. So, I think, uh, where, now you say expat, but I think you said over email that you've been living in Sweden, right, pretty much your, the majority of your life, is that correct? That's correct. My family moved here before I had any say in the matter, and I've been stuck here since. I have a wife now, a son, mm-hmm. both sleeping downstairs. So I'm going to try to not wake them up. Um, that's what's keeping me here. Although I will say this, my um, my employer is getting more and more international orders, mm-hmm. some of them coming from the United States. So there is a chance that that could be a vehicle for me to make a return um, if I become involved in any sort of effort of starting up a production unit stateside. Mm-hmm. And so how, if you don't mind me asking, can I ask like what state were you born in and at what age you went to Sweden? Um, Massachusetts family moved to Sweden when I, I think it was three years old. So what, so what made them decide to move to Sweden? That's a bit of a story. Most of it, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Most of it, I don't think my parents are even willing to share. But I, I strongly suspect it has a lot to do with my father failing to find steady work in the States. And so he saw a posting for a job in Sweden then, and he was like, well, let's just go there. Yeah, well, yeah. that's what he knew. Frankly, very American of him <laughs> to be willing to go somewhere so far away for work, if you ask me. But so, yeah, I mean, you, you sent. So, all right. So then you grew up in Sweden. Um, you know, I, I, I almost just asked the question, what was it like to grow up in Sweden? Um, I can to agree. I can to a degree compare it since um, I have, after all, spent most of my yeah. summers as a 
as a youngster with my grandparents. Um, and I have attended school in the United States, just not full terms. Um, I, I will say that perhaps the main difference in um, the school environment would be discipline. Where in Sweden, uh, the discipline that you see in students and teachers is much, much reduced to what you normally experience in the United States, which is a major problem. Uh, so you're saying again, there's I, more I've or less discipline in Sweden? Much less. Much, much less. Much less. Uh, um, well, I'm curious, what makes you think there's more discipline in American schools? Well, I'm, of course, speaking in generalities, mm -hmm. but uh, in Sweden there is... Um, the, the obligation to educate the students is not placed on the shoulders of parents, primarily. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not the duty of parents to get their children educated. It is the duty of uh, the schools. Mm -hmm. Of the state to make sure they are. Of the state, yes. That's their perception, yeah. What mm -hmm. that results in, then, is a situation where um, if a student in a Swedish school um, misbehaves and is completely indifferent um, towards his own education, what will happen is uh, no ill consequences will befall them. Well, I mean, I, I find that an interesting uh, thing to say because in America, I don't see that as any different. I mean, um, and I grew up here, and uh, what I would say in America is you just have to remember that there's 50 different states, all different types of schools, um, and, and man, the educations in some of the schools in America vary quite radically from what you might expect in a different school across I've, the country. But I've seen... I mean, there's a huge dropout rate in America. I don't know that uh, there's, in some places there's an onus for sure, but I mean, uh, it's not, certainly not my group of friends. All my friends graduated, went to college. You know, that's the group I kind of ran with. But I mean, there's a lot of people that dropped out that do drop out in America. I mean, they think uh, I still hear it's an epidemic, even if I don't really know anyone. I guess I knew have one friend who did, but he you know finished his education later, anyways. Okay, uh, I, I've seen, of course, many horror stories of what it can look like in in the United States, and of course, uh, in states like California, you have maybe. What is this? Three to five percent of the teaching staff that are not actually qualified as teachers, which is a in whole Sweden, other discussion too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In in Sweden, um, I don't have the figures for last year, but in 2016, of all the people that were hired full time as teachers in Sweden, two thirds of them were not qualified. They they were not credentialed teachers. Mm -hmm. They had not finished the five years of um, uh, college studies that's required for you to be qualified as a teacher to, to gain your credentials. Um, two thirds. Uh, and within, within five years, 20% of all teachers then actually do, um, do graduate from their college studies they're out of their teaching positions. So within mm -hmm. five years, 20% of them is gone. They're mm -hmm. doing something completely different. And um, uh, of course, the, the American school system has a lot of problems, 
if you wouldn't mind, I have to jump in, though, about that, because in America, it's kind of a similar problem, but different uh, factors. So, well, they may all be, and I'm making the biggest air quotes ever, credentialed. I, I got to tell you, it's pretty easy. And I know if there's going to be teachers listening that, and so I really have to preface this, that think I'm insulting teachers, because I'm not. A, a lot of, you know, like, for instance, my honors chemistry teacher in high school literally started his own website where he would send CDs to underprivileged areas all over the country. He made, I think he actually made decent money, but he wasn't even tenured because he didn't want to be tenured. He wanted to prove he was a good teacher. And there's teachers like that all over the country. One of my best friends, his wife's a teacher, and you can tell she's like basically picking up the slack for the other teachers around her who aren't doing the job. Difference in America, yeah. though, is all of these people are credentialed and half of them can get that degree like it's nothing. Right. And I've heard about like I can't speak for Sweden, but and I can't pretend that I'm an expert. But what I have heard is that it's a lot harder to become a teacher in Germany, for instance, whereas in America, it's kind of a fallback decision of people who get these communications degrees and communications degrees are just handed out like candy. I mean, I mean, I, I know some people, again, will get mad at me for saying that. But it's like, look, I'm a mechanical engineer and it was a lot. Not, not everyone can get through those classes, but if anyone can get a certification, I'm not sure what that certification is worth. And I've had so many teachers that, again, it's like why our teachers paid so little. It's because half of the ones I had did not, <laughs> some of them just straight up didn't teach, right? So I will say this is not a uniquely Swedish problem. And what's interesting is you're looking at factors that are different, but it seems like a lot of the results are the same. Right. Well, um, as far as I understood um, from back when I was looking at it, it is, yes, easier to get credentialed in the United States as a teacher, especially if you have a previous degree. So it's a wonderful fallback decision if you are qualified in some other field. Thinking, well, maybe I could, you know, hang out with some kids in high school and, you know, pass on some of my knowledge and it's a little tougher than that, really, for especially in most schools. Um, but uh, in in Sweden, um, if you're starting from scratch, it's uh, five years of college studies. That's what you're looking at, and the mm -hmm. pay is awful. It's terrible. Um, you may find a position where you are highly paid, relatively speaking. That's um, say four four thousand dollars. A month. Mm -hmm. that's, that's what passes for a high-paying teaching job in Sweden, but that's also going to be someplace like Stockholm, where the living costs are. Yeah, I'm just thinking about that, right? Like four thousand really euro, right? Yeah. Um, but anyway, you said you don't. You, you said you don't want to badmouth teachers. Well, I, I don't. Well, have I know teachers forms. who are hard workers, right? Yeah. So you can't I, make a generalization. I've, I've seen some too, but. Uh, and yes, even though you need to spend five years in order to get credentialed, uh, I wouldn't say that uh, even a small sliver of that uh, is actually meaningful knowledge that you are able to put to use. So do you have That's any examples? That's the real actual knowledge. Um, right, because you say, uh, just to make it clear why I asked well, that. Well, th like this is just what my wife is telling me, really. Uh, she is a teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, the discipline question is one that I think is a much longer discussion where I would want to do more research before having that one. I do find it yeah. interesting, though, the teacher thing, though, because there is a and this is something no one wants to talk about in America is the teacher problem, because, well, 
frankly, either you're someone typically on the right who hates teachers or you're someone on the left who says all teachers are great. And the truth is, well, there's good teachers and bad teachers, but I do find that interesting that you say that you're, they're not getting credentialed, whereas, and again, and there will be people who get mad at me, it, it is my opinion that becoming a teacher is very, very easy. I mean, I remember one example in high school where there was a teacher who was trying to show this equation to teach, you know, it was like it was an, an honors math class, so it wasn't easy, but um, she was saying we all got this question wrong. And then one of the smartest kids in the class, uh, besides me, of course, now he gets up and goes to the board and he corrected it for her. And he's like, no, you're wrong. You gave us all the wrong answer. We got it right. And I remember seeing that and thinking, so what, how can she become a math teacher if a student stands up and shows her how to solve the equation better? I mean, and if he wouldn't have done that, we would have all gotten a B on the, you know, we would have all lost 10% on our tests. So I guess I will say that, that it is, it's just, I just find that so interesting that different factors are having these, uh, like again, and, and if you don't make teacher a, maybe I would argue, and I'm just spitballing, like a revered position or one that pays better and not everyone can easily become, you're going to be stuck with a lot of teachers who just don't do their job, I guess is, it seems, I just find that so well, interesting in Sweden. The, the curious thing about teaching as a profession is, of course, it's, it's very easy to get into. It's very easy to be a teacher. It's in most places extraordinarily yeah. easy to just download some coursework from yeah. from Google mm -hmm. or whatever, and you just load that up for the students. You know, watch this, whatever, fill out the questionnaire at the end, and you're done. It's very very hard to be a good teacher because it requires a lot of you. Oh, it's a it lot of different skills. It's it's a very very highly g loaded um, profession, which is to say, it requires a lot of intelligence to be good at it mm -hmm. consistently. And, it takes uh, passion and intelligence. Yes, it also requires, of course, uh, a good amount of interpersonal skills. So mm -hmm. you can't you can't go into teaching being really intelligent, but struggling with um, <laughs> which i've had plenty of those yeah either students who are far too agree agreeable far too disagreeable and and yourself not being able to uh, deal with the interpersonal con conflicts between students themselves um, which of course is also also one of those fantastic challenges of the teaching profession what do, what do you do when one half of the classroom is fighting the other half of the classroom on the floor Mm -hmm. And so is that why you want to move back or quote unquote back? I would say you've basically been Swedish the whole well, time if you move there at three. But is that why you want to move to the United States? Because you think it might be a better experience or that you're tired of dealing with these specific problems? Although, again, I'm warning you, well, a lot of those problems are here, man. You're not just going to the promised land. There's problems everywhere. Yeah, I'm, I'm not entirely uh... I'm not entirely sure that things would be better in the United States, mm -hmm. um, but I am watching the situation. Uh, of course, now I have a family, so I'm very much concerned about the future and what what it might hold. Um, I want to at least be aware of what my options are. Mm -hmm. So I guess let's move forward. Then you reached out. And I, so what do you do? What's your job right now? Oh, I'm in um, metal fabrication. Mm -hmm. So I make. Yeah, I make stuff out of 
sheet metal, uh, square stocks, you name it. Um, mostly what I do is I weld aluminum, make ambulance ramps. Mm-hmm. And when you say you make, uh, what is your title though? Like, because like, what does that mean? Like, what's your day to day? It doesn't need to go in depth, right? But like roughly. Well, the company. The company is very small, so uh, I believe my title is welder, but it's a very fluid position. So I've been a project lead on uh, a number of things. Um, for example, we had to do some redesign of an old pro- uh, product that we had for the Norwegian market, which were these um, cash registers. And um, my task then was... Uh, you know, getting the the wiring and the electronics side on that working properly. Mm-hmm. And so you actually specifically reached out to me because you wanted to talk about the, um, well, uh, the way I describe it, and you're free to correct me. Obviously, this isn't the exact correct term, but like like AR measuring. So some sort of device that you can wear on your head, right? And then it looks at the angles or lengths of objects you're working on and actually tells you down to, I think you said three decimal places, the measurement. Is that correct? Yes. Um, of course, I'm going to be going into detail about this, but it is it is my view and is speculation, but it is informed speculation that... Once we get to a point where we are able to uh, wear um, head-mounted AR systems that are able to give us instantly very accurate measurements, Mm -hmm. then that is going to herald in a new industrial revolution. And it's not going to be a a minor change. It's going to be a major, major change. Um, Because... Most of the lost productivity that we see in the manufacturing industry today is really just down to faulty measurement, either where the specified measurements are wrong for the part that's being produced or where what is produced and then um, passes through quality control is divergent from what it should be in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just and just to give people an idea, right, like um, everything, I think so many people who don't work in manufacturing, which I suppose is most people technically have don't understand how much effort <laughs> actually goes into making every little thing they have and making sure that if they buy a certain product, it's the same as the other product someone else but it's really not as simple as designing something on a computer and then the machine sticks it out. Like, for instance, I worked at General Motors and the amount of effort that goes into every single little button, every single seat part. Uh, you know, I was a validation engineer at the in the car is incredible. There are entire data sheets that are like 30 pages long for every component in that car. And they have like three ways of making sure the it is within specifications when it comes out. And then there will be one engineer in charge of every type of product who will then go to every supplier of every little part and say, how are you going to be sure, for instance, this will be exactly this length every time? And it's on the onus of the supplier to prove it, right? And so many of the problems we had 
really were just the dimensions were off. And I still see yeah. that working in the automotive industry now. Like now I'm more in the sales end of it, but I'm in charge of, you know, guiding a program forward. Really, I'm the forward facing person to the customer. And it's like half of the delays, half the problems we've had is because we get a part back and that metal part was out of tolerance by like 2%. But if it's a 2% variance and then the other part has a 2% variance, it just won't snap into place. Yeah. And even if, uh, even if there are no errors in manufacturing, just the act of calibrating the tools and uh, doing the quality control on what's being produced, you know, taking parts to a measuring station, to a surface plate, uh, and getting accurate measurements, just the act of doing that uh, wastes an enormous amount of time. Um, of course, it isn't a waste of time as, as things are now because it's the only way of doing it. But if we get to a point where having a large um, six by four feet surface plate is no longer mm -hmm. necessary, then that's going to have a major, major impact, especially for small scale manufacturing, uh, mm. which mm. is now yeah. something that we're seeing change. It's perhaps the, the single largest uh, data point that we should really stand out to you if you're looking at manufacturing industry as a whole. That's the resurgence of the cottage cottage industry. Mm -hmm. Of course, cottage industry was all that existed back in the good old days before the industrial revolution really took off. And the why don't you say what cottage industry is? Just how would you define it in a few sentences? Cottage industry is you know John or Bob making something in their garage and mm -hmm. selling to their neighbor. So it's uh, locally made, locally sourced, small scale. And um, uh, again, back before the Industrial Revolution, that's how everything was made. Oh, you yeah, had a everything. blacksmith in the, <laughs> in the village who, yeah. who, who, would, uh, who would make your plows, who would make your um, trowels, who would make your draw knives. And if you needed something made, that's who you went to, that's who you relied to. And and the local market was really just that. It was the local market. There was yeah. very few wares coming from outside. And uh, the first industrial revolution, what kicked that off was, of course, you know, the metal lathe and micrometers. Uh, mm -hmm. Although some people argue that what really kicked the first industrial revolution off and, and made it take off was uh, free enterprise and perhaps most importantly, safe banking which mm -hmm. would really um, be the reason why Britain was the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution and not France. Uh, <laughs> the metal lathe was invented by a Frenchman, mm -hmm. but what they lacked was, of course, um, a uh, society in which free enterprise was able to take off. And who's going to fund this? I mean, if you're going to yeah. produce a thousand, yes, it's it's very interesting that you have interchangeable parts, but interchangeable parts mean mass production, which requires a lot of bankrolling to produce those parts in one location. And if you yeah. don't have, if you don't have a way to, frankly, exchange value in the first place and reliably go to get that value, yeah, I mean that's very true. And uh, replaceable parts and large-scale manufacturing. The assembly line manufacturing was, of course, what kicked off the second industrial revolution. 
and of course with the advance um, of uh, steam power to electric power too mm-hmm. but really what what made that possible was um, gauge blocks you know, small square blocks um, mm-hmm. of very very finely machined steel mm-hmm. which were first invented by a Swedish man called Carl Edvard Johansson from Eskilstuna. Uh, what he did was he, he just took his wife's sewing machine and using that, he ground uh, steel blocks to mm. very, very mm, fine yeah. tolerances. And as a, as a consequence of that, um, Henry, Henry Ford, um, Henry Ford, he, he considered um, Carl a very, very important business partner. Uh, and he called them Joe Blocks. Many people still do call them Joe Blocks after the man who invented them. Just these very, very finely engineered uh, square blocks that can be used as a reference when calibrating right. other measurement tools. Um, and they're not cheap. Uh, no. Really not. If you want to get a, a decent set of shop grade uh, gauge blocks are like fifteen hundred dollars mm-hmm. so um yeah you, you compare that to uh to a pc and uh, everything just pales in comparison you you want to get a decent surface plate yeah that's another fifteen hundred mm-hmm. and that's just for two things which allow you uh to find a reference plane mm-hmm. nothing else no no micrometers you want Micrometers for inner diameter. Oh, that might be another thousand uh, dollars. Set of uh, micrometers for outer diameters might be another thousand or more. Uh, things get really crazy when you start looking at measurement uh, tools. Uh, and measurement tooling uh, itself is a very small industry, but it has, of course, enormous impact for the rest of all of the manufacturing. And um, now the uh, the 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 big changes that we're seeing in measurement devices um, is, of course, related to machine vision. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, optical measurement instruments that allow you to very quickly get very accurate measurements um, through automated processes. Um, right. Sometimes and anyone can get these devices compared to how expensive it used to be. Is that your point? Essentially, yes. Uh, they are comparatively much cheaper. Uh, oh, yeah. They, they might not be cheaper to purchase initially. Mm-hmm. Certainly, no. Um, but the, 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 major, the major benefit of, of course, uh, the ease of operation and the much, much, much mm-hmm. reduced maintenance um, that they incur on you. Well, yeah, I mean, maintenance, right? It's... Uh, that's such a big like i mean i mean if you go back on an example i could come up with if you look at some of the older sports cars uh, they could compete really well with even you know premium cars from 10 20 years later but those first truly good sports cars require an enormous amount of maintenance from a skilled mechanic that and, and, and sometimes a mechanic that only knows the intricacies of one car's problems. When I say one car, I don't mean one model. I mean, he just knows this one has this engine block that does this. And the example, I, you know, the proliferation of just like these standards in the automotive industry eventually led to the point where it's like, look, man, if you get 
a Chevy Spark right now. It's a lot faster than a Corvette from the 70s. <laughs> and it's oh, just yeah. and uh, and to talk about how much more comfortable and safe it is. <laughs> you know, and it's interesting you talk about how Yeah, I mean another example I can think of is it's like I don't know if you've ever seen the YouTube channel. This is a bit off subject, but uh, in range TV where they were talking about how, and this is a kind of, kind of almost like a gun history channel and they were, but they also talk about tactical stuff sometimes. And I've, they were talking in range and forgotten weapons for yeah. years and years. Yeah, me too. Of course, as you can probably tell by me bringing them up. One example they brought up was a question from a reader mail was like, when could they have made an AK 47? And they were like, well, one, that worked well, probably the 1860s, and it would have taken an enormous amount of money, and each round would have cost as much as a gun for it to fire, but it probably would have worked about as well as now, except it would have been a lot heavier. And they said, and then, when could they have first have made one that could have been somewhat mass-produced? I don't know, probably the 1910s, if they knew what to look for, but the real innovation was just the ability to mass-manufacture the ammo quick enough for to even fire it and even understanding what a gun needed to be because they were debates you know no we need them to shoot three kilometers not fire 10 a second you know these debates and that type of stuff like could we have made some of the cars we have now back then yeah but you couldn't have mass manufactured them and the ease of use of you know these newer technologies a lot of them brought on by computers this is where i started to get to my point is when you start to see these startups appearing not just an automotive which some automotive there are starting to be legitimately startups for like scooters and stuff where it was really five people. And because they have 3d printers and the ability to measure more accurately with computer devices, they can, as long as it's a good idea, make something that competes with someone who produces a million a year, as long as they have the creativity. And I mean, I think, yeah, the co- I guess what I'm saying is I, uh, this whole cottage industry thing is a cycle we keep seeing repeated. And I think you're right. We're going into one right now where the proliferation of these devices and stuff, um, it's going to make it so almost anyone can do quite a bit. In a, and the last example I will give <laughs> is when people talk about how expensive some computer gaming parts are, like their graphics cards and stuff. It's like you understand that um, like a 15 teraflop graphics card is the equivalent of a supercomputer from 10 years ago. And once everyone has a gaming PC that's also a supercomputer, you can use that for a lot more than just gaming. And people have realized that, and that's one reason prices go up. <laughs> But yeah, go yeah. on. Um, actually, since you brought up in range, um, I sure. remember watching um, Ian's video on the Lamat revolver. Right, he's made several. And what what is always fascinating. And for those who don't those, know, this is a arguably just the best revolver from the American Civil War. It held nine rounds, had an underbarrel shot. They are fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's been one of my. Fantastic. It's a fascinating revolver. Um, and, uh, I mean, again, right. Nine rounds, an under barrel shotgun and the thing worked fantastically. It was accurate. It was the best revolver. Everyone wanted one if they found one on the battlefield. Um, but go on. Yeah. They were also enormously expensive, of course, but they were uh-huh. absolutely beautifully manufactured. They're astonishingly finely engineered and made. Uh, but of course, is that what the Confederate cause needed they they need these enormously expensive very very fine revolvers or did they need you know mass production of firearms that were just good enough mm-hmm. uh, and that's kind of getting to uh, to the point that I'm going to bring up here it is that what 
what is Push required the for <laughs> yeah what is what is required for a technology to be truly revolutionary isn't for mm-hmm. it to you know appear in a form that yeah sure people could use but it would be very very expensive it's it's for it to appear in a form that is good enough good mm-hmm. enough for it to be used widely yeah uh so what what we're seeing now is um lots and lots of people uh trying to develop virtual reality that is good enough for people to want to desire it mm-hmm. um and valve they're making a push with um, Half-Life Alex, in order to make the sales argument for the uh, what is it, the HTC headset that they have branded. Uh, anyhow, uh, we're seeing the same thing in augmented reality. Uh, there are a lot of companies that have uh, enormous incentives to develop augmented reality solutions that are good enough mm-hmm. because as soon as someone really does hit goal with something that um, they can use in a sales pitch to people where people are going to you know perk up and go wow that is something that we really great for us that's when things are really going to take off now currently uh, the state of augmented reality um, at least for industrial applications is rather limited uh, mm-hmm. So you've got companies like uh, Microsoft uh, and others that have developed um, augmented reality headsets, either monocular or binocular. Most of them are really just helmet-mounted displays. Some of them also have uh, sensors on them, cameras and time-of-flight sensors in order to do real-time spatial mapping mm-hmm. with just the device you're wearing. Um Although the, the the main problem and the reason why they really sell, especially not compared to uh, the regular iPad or um, or smartphone um, augmented reality solutions, is well, it's kind of like virtual reality. Back when the Oculus was really hyped to high heavens on Kickstarter. <laughs> Years know, before it even came it, out. Yeah, yeah pe- and people were really sold on this idea of stepping into the virtual world and you know, having this great immersive experience with, um, with the 3D environment. And then when they try on these goggles, they realize, um, hmm, you can see the pixels and the frame rate is kind of wonky and you, you end up getting seasick. Yeah. So the the main teething problems facing augmented reality solutions today uh, is, of course, latency, mm-hmm. uh, accuracy of spatial mapping, so that um, what you're seeing tracks the surfaces mm-hmm. well. Um, Their wires course, suck. They're completely cumbersome. They yeah, suck. I'm not, I'm not afraid is a to say major, it. They major suck. hurdle. <laughs> Like people will look back in 20 years if we do figure this out, which I mean, I think we will. Uh, and they'll say, I cannot believe people were willing to spend an hour hooking everything up. I mean, I, I, I listen to some gaming podcasts. and I talk about how like, no, every time I've used my VR device, it's been incredible. What a fun couple hours. And I actually burned like a thousand calories using it. It was so much yeah. fun. 
But like most weekends, you just kind of want to watch Netflix, boot up Battlefield or, you know, play something relaxing because, I mean, you work all week and and just knowing and I mean, I have room, you know, you can see behind me like I have room to play in VR. I have a house. And I have my PlayStation 4's VR device there, and it's hooked up, but still just taking that 10 minutes to push the table out of the way, make sure it's calibrated. It's so annoying. It's so annoying. Yeah, and you don't even have any kids that leave toys out all over. No. I have a dog. She does leave toys. Yeah. But the interesting thing is, of course, that most people have uh, have some sort of relationship to augmented reality already. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, the, the single most common use case scenario for augmented reality and the one that perhaps most people have actually enjoyed mm-hmm. uh, and really is good enough one is instagram mm, right who, who doesn't like making themselves look like a dog or uh no augmented reality uh you know the use case scenarios are really rather limited today um mm-hmm. At least when we're a talking lot of about gimmicks. things that are good enough. Mostly uh, we're talking gimmicks, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, in medical fields, if you could have a nurse who wears uh, virtual reality, and, no, augmented reality goggles, and is able to very quickly with them identify a vein, um, that's going to make mm-hmm. many lives much more comfortable. Mm-hmm. And is in areas like that that we're going to see early adoption take place. Um, fighter fighters, for example, uh, also wearing augmented reality um, mm-hmm. devices to allow them to more easily navigate through you know, smoke-filled buildings. That's also going to be one of those places where there is going to be a big push to get this technology working uh, because here we're talking about people's lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most precious things we have. And if we're able to save a life through the use of a technology that might not be good enough, but could at least help some. Practically that, it works. That's an, you know, that's a multi-billion dollar industry there just on that alone. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, it doesn't need to be able to be capable of photorealistic gaming for it to really take no, off in another use case. I mean, actually, if anyone's seen uploads of like uh, the example I would give is fighter helicopter pilots gunning. Like if you mm-hmm. see something like that online and then you play Battlefield, you'll go, wow, actually, the graphics of the camera in this fake helicopter in the video game look significantly better than what they have oh, yeah, in the real helicopters. Sharper. But they don't need it. All they need is a white dot to show up, and it works pretty much as yeah. well. But, but back to AR and the cottage industry. Back back to AR and the cottage industry. Uh, of course, a lot of what's driving uh, the growth of the cottage industry that we're seeing now is um, in part, you know, CNC manufacturing, uh, computer aided manufacturing, computer aided design, which makes it easier for people to prototype things very rapidly. Um, without having to get in, you know, consultant firm, without having a team of drafts, mm-hmm. draftsmen, uh, you know, getting the plants to the plant before you can actually actually get something back. But it's also uh, just the fact that we're developing these more and more interconnected markets, where it's mm-hmm. easier to find manufacturers close to you, 
yeah. at rates that are you know agreeable to your budget. Um, but the the real big tipping point that we're going to be seeing with augmented reality is when you're able to use augmented reality systems uh, in conjunction with you know distributed aperture system, which you know cameras, multiple cameras, um, and time of flight sensors. Um, that the spatial mapping capabilities allow you to get accurate measurements uh, instantly. So without right. having to take your workpiece, go to a measuring station, get measurements, go back, or if you're on a construction site, um, say you're putting in the um, the uh, rebar for the, uh, for a foundation, you can just see instantly in front of you on a helmet-mounted display. Right. Okay, this is where that removes goes. so much human error too. Just the fact that it's scanning in front of you, yeah. it says a number, and your, your stupid human hands aren't miss moving things around. I mean, half the mistakes, most of the mistakes are human error, frankly. I mean, yeah, um, it's it's going to be huge. You're just integrating that technology with building information modeling, where you're able to see the plans for what you're building in the different stages as you're doing it, uh, getting the measurements as you're mm -hmm. doing it, that's going to rem rem remove a lot of these losses that we're seeing today from people having to leave their current uh, site or leave their uh, current station in order to get the tools they need to mm -hmm. carry on a measurement. So no more reaching for a tape measure, no more reaching for a protractor, no more reaching for, um, for the uh, laser uh, to get a measurement. You, you just have it instantly on your display. That's going to be where we're seeing the tipping point in the next big industrial revolution, where the losses from faulty measurement, losses from taking measurements, uh, are going to be reduced to a point where productivity just goes zip. Something that is almost impossible to quantify before it happens. Like uh, that, uh, it could oh, be yeah. an exponential increase, but we don't know. I mean, actually, an example I would give that again is kind of out of left field. Is it's like, you know, I, I have a pretty beastly PC, and in fact, the app I use for rendering my videos for Moore's Law is Dead don't really use all 16 of my cores, frankly, and they probably could get done a little faster using another app. But the fact of the matter is the app I use is so, so easy to use and so easy to drag and drop and move and uh, correct the audio quickly that it's not about that. The reason I have a beast PC is I can have a bunch of tabs open at once doing research, recording audio and rendering at the same time and just not having to stop and grab yeah. something else, reboot my PC because frankly, if you do a bunch of rendering work, uh, a thing no one talks about is that your PC just gets slower the longer it's turned on. Like, I don't need to reboot. I don't need to do this. The coherency and the concurrency of just be able to do everything at once and spit out a thing quickly is much more important than me rendering the video in 4K or using an app that adds an extra visual effect at the end. You know, for me, and it's all because once you lose, it's so hard to quantify the creativity, one, and two, the like just the amount of time lost reworking, switching focus. That 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 loss of productivity by switching your focus. I mean, people really can only concentrate for like 15 minutes at a time. And if you don't interrupt what they were doing, I imagine a lot of workers building things could probably build four times this stuff in the same amount of time, if I had to guess. 
Sure. But then you also, you also have to get to a point where, of course, what you're wearing, um, first of all, is capable of getting you what you need, uh, getting it there quickly, and being tolerable for a full workday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and until we're there, sure. people are going to struggle with that idea. But uh, as far as uh, augmented reality and in industry goes, uh, where we will see the uh, initial large-scale adoption and this I can pretty much guarantee is in remote assistance. So instead of calling up a consultancy yes. from getting someone to the site you're on uh, in order to take advantage of their expertise to either repair something or to uh, finish whatever it is you're working on, the the ability to simply have them, you know, join you in a team viewer like experience. Mm-hmm on a helmet-mounted display, where they're able to see what you see from your perspective and able to guide your hands. Uh, that, I think, is going to be the first large-scale adoption of augmented reality in industry that we're going to see. Yeah, just put on the headset, and it's like, no, this is my problem. Look, like I you know, work in Peoria, and I had to go to a one of our customers, and it's like, no, this is the problem with this line on this engine. Why don't you come in today? Which is not hard to do, you know, 15 minute, 20 minute drive to where I needed to go. But like if I could have just put on a headset or actually better yet, just my engineer I work remotely with, if he could have put on the headset himself, uh, well, you know, or like, heck, I could have brought a thing there that has cameras. And if he just, you know, in Indiana puts on the headset and is like, oh, I see what the yeah. problem is like that. But even 3D. if it's just through a phone, even that is going to have major. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, but, phones are getting 3D cameras now sometimes too, so you can yeah. see where. Yeah, most of the um, last gen, or I believe current gen now, flagships are going to be coming out with um, time of flight sensors. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be more or less de facto standard from now on out, I guess. Which is going to be interesting to see how they're going to incorporate that in uh, software because. Of course, software also has to keep up. But engineers, I believe, are going to be the ones leading the way. Because, sure, you could use uh, augmented reality headsets as a way of accelerating training. But really, are you creating a better technician by training him faster? Not necessarily. Uh, But you are absolutely going to increase the productivity of your engineers if you can keep them in their office instead of having to send them off-site time and time again. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting how, yeah, how much, like at the same time I talk to people and there's this worry about automation removing jobs, which it will remove some, I'm sure. But there's also a lot of interesting debate. It might remove some jobs. Right, uh, but there's uh, also it, this debate of like, well, maybe there's just more people can do that we didn't know we would have them doing in the future. I don't necessarily think that what we're going to be seeing is the loss of jobs. Mm-hmm. What we are going to be seeing is the transformation of the required skills. Right. So where previously you would have someone um, sweeping the floor, you now have a Roomba. Yeah. Right. So do, does that mean that the person sweeping the floor no longer is able to sweep in the floors and is now doomed to starve? Maybe not. But they should probably expand their skill set. Mm-hmm. The trouble with that is, of course, um, will we be getting to a point where you have 
increased demands to where you no longer can at all find enough qualified people who are able to take the high skill, very highly um, mm. abstract right. uh, problem That's what solving I'm worried about. jobs that you need. Creativity. Uh, maybe. The more we automate, the more we have machine learning do the repetitive tasks for us, the more you just need to be a creative individual with initiative. And that's not everyone. <laughs> that is a problem no. I see coming. No. Uh, creative people who are industrious are very, very rare. Mm-hmm. Especially the ones who are talented and skilled. Very rare. Uh, those people are precious, and if you find them, you should take advantage of them to the fullest. Mm-hmm. Well, and so what do you think about solutions because i've thought about this a lot you know i've talked to my brother dan about this multiple times probably not in any podcast but you know we're brothers so we talk a lot and like i think at a certain point you know if you go back and watch those black and white like i don't even know what they were i think they showed them before movies and movie theaters like weird like look at what we're working on oh ge's got the newest you know those types of videos and like one thing they talked about all I know they're hilarious all the time back in the fifties and sixties was just like soon there will be the 20 hour work week. And that's because your robots will do you doing the work for you. And it's like, well, that's not really what's panned out, but we are innovating. Life is standard of living across the entire world. It's just gone up. It's just gone up in the past 50 years universally, even if some places have more than others. And you go, well, certainly eventually may we just have to accept that, who knows what the number is? I'm just throwing them out. 20%, 30% of people aren't going to be doing these most important jobs. And we might just have to accept that some people don't have <laughs> don't have something useful they can contribute anymore when we've automated out the sweeping jobs and the jobs above the sweeping jobs. Well, the, the big trouble there. Is of course one. Uh, how, how do you quantify um, into the future? How do you how do you accurately predict uh, the level of skills that are going to be required in the future? Uh, that's of course the, the first big task. But I don't I don't think that, um, especially in Western societies, that you're making things easier but for yourself by uh, increasing the uh, skills required to get into the workplace at all. Mm. And also at the same time, um, having very, very lax immigration policies, um, primarily used by, uh, primarily taken advantage of by, if, if, you, if you were serious about wanting to uh, tackle the issues of the future, um, you know, forthright, then you would also have to face up with the reality of, well, maybe not everyone is able to get on this train and get up to speed with everyone else. Well, or, I mean, one thing you might argue is if you're going to have people emigrate to your country and you really are, you're going to have some, you don't just want to stagnate. You know, the countries that Mm -hmm. have immigration you know, uh, some level of immigration succeed. Now you can argue how much is too much for sure, but 
you can't just bring them. I, this is just, I guess, my opinion, but I, I think I'm pretty passionate about it. If you bring someone into your country, you cannot then just say, all right, dust off your hands. We're done. We did it. We brought them to the country. It should be incumbent on you to make sure they become educated. They learn whatever local customs they need to to get around so that they do contribute because just bringing a bunch of people over and saying we did it we brought people over and they sweep the floors now doesn't really help anyone if you're not uh, you know integrating them into the society in useful roles and then that's when you get into the discussion of like who do you let in maybe we should make sure they can pass this test first maybe and if not shouldn't we teach them it before (laughs) otherwise why are we even bringing people here well that uh, what what you touch on is the, the the cognitive dissonance of the left in regards to immigration, where um, the mantra is everyone is the same, everyone is equal. Um, everyone is the same, so we should, should be make everyone equal. And then yeah. when people do arrive in large numbers because you invited them uh, and you incentivize them to come with uh, promises of benefits and grand opportunities, they then just drop the ball uh, and don't do anything actively to actually integrate them into the workforce. Uh, is is that really caring for the immigrants, or is it simply hoping and wishing, wishing upon a star that things are going to work out if you just don't treat anyone mean? Um, well, so I was just actually, before we talked today, I watched the, uh, I usually watch it with breakfast every Saturday morning, the newest Bill Maher. And one of the people that was on there brought up, it seems like on the left right now, it just means you're a nicer person, the more pro immigration you are. And so everyone's kind of being forced to say they're pro immigration so they don't come off as mean to their base. For a lot of people, I believe uh, that is the situation they find themselves in. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I would ask to anyone listening to this who is on the left side of politics and is very... Which can mean all different it. types of things. I actually have a problem yes, with that saying left and right, but we know specific, what you mean. Yeah. yeah. Specifically, my question to those who are advocates of open borders completely the uncontrolled immigration. Which, which is kind of abolish, a new opinion. Abolishize like, all that. Yeah. Uh, my, my question to them would be, when we see a future in which high-skilled jobs are going to be the norm in almost every sector, Sure. What, what good do your policies then do for the home countries of these immigrants who are seeing their most skilled laborers, mm-hmm. all of them leave for your country. Um, aren't they just going to be left in the dust even worse than they are now? For in, for example, that's something I've said before is when you see like, well, immigrants are so hard working in our country. Of course, I'm American, so I'm referencing my own country. But that's because these are the people who got up and moved. These are the people that said they wanted a better life. So just right there, you're going to probably willow out the people who are willing to at least travel a long distance. You know, when you have a country like America that's built by people who are 
willing to get on a boat or unfortunately forcibly brought there. They had to endure a hardship to get to a better life, whether it was forced upon them or they decided to travel here by boat. And so it really shouldn't be surprised when you see a lot of hardworking people in one place if they all had to go through a tribulation to get there. But if there isn't one and if everyone's just coming in, you know, well, I guess I'm really saying two things then, right? I'm saying if everyone's just coming in, it's not always that. And then like you say, well, if we do just greater recruit all these people who are the hardest working, yeah, I mean, when you look at some of the poorer countries in Latin America, you go, well, yeah, I mean, all the uh, scientists came to America. <laughs> I mean, so what are they supposed to do over there? Well, it's, it's a loose, loose situation either way. Uh, and it's a complete mess. Uh, what I would like to see is at least a sane and honest discussion uh, sure. and an open debate about what could be the best solutions uh, to solve the immigration issues going forward. Uh, so what, what do you, what do you think? I mean, yeah. What do I think would be the best solution? It's hard to, I would say best is a very loaded and maybe a presumptive word, but what do you think could be the solution? What do I think could be the solution? Yeah. Well, I, I think perhaps, uh, without being impolite, uh, without being too harsh, uh, while also protecting the interests of your own citizens. I think the the best solution would be to, well, first of all, clamp down on illegal immigration and just get that out of the way to begin with. Um, that's step one. Step two would be ensure that you're only accepting immigrants from nations where um, the the people coming in integrate well into society. Well, so wouldn't a more positive way of saying that be to focus on making sure there is good integration? Because I think personally speaking, it's a little reductive to say only let them in from countries where they integrate well. Well, it's like, well, we don't, there's just no effort put into integrating them. So there's smart people in every country. There is. And if you put in the effort and made sure they had to pass a certain test, I'm sure you can get "quote unquote" good people from every country, right? But you got to put in the of effort. Of course, to get I, th- I think that a lot more could be done in the United States uh, and in many other Europe, countries. Certainly, certainly in Sweden, yes. But well, it's funny you it, say that though, because there were—I think it was in Tennessee—there was this crackdown. <laughs> so, I think someone on the right got elected to crack down on illegal workers there. Yeah. And then he did, <laughs> and then he put yeah, all this agricultural figured. business out. All of these agricultural companies that were voting for the right lost their businesses because they didn't realize. Well, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. If not realize is the right term. They ignored that all of their farmers were illegal immigrants, and they put themselves yeah. out of business. So I think really the takeaway again is, like you said, a holistic approach. Like I'm, you know, immigration countries like Rome. I don't know if you want to call it a country or like these former mega states had substantial immigration from people from all over the world, had people who traveled for a better life and worked harder than other people, but that they didn't also, but that looking at this situation should not just be from one side or the other, that there's probably an answer, but we're not going to find the perfect balance unless everyone's bringing facts and speaking openly about it. Because there are very real problems. There are very real problems. If you ignore them, well, they only get worse. 
you know. Well, the, the first step in finding a solution to anything is, of course, being honest about what the problem is, where the right. issues lie. Um, I'm not entirely sure that we're there yet. I hope we might be in a couple of years. Um, I think I think we're going to start getting there pretty soon. I, I'm not going to predict yeah. right <laughs> when we get there, but I, I think you can start to see shifting in people. People acknowledging things more and more now, every everywhere too. I, I think um, <laughs> there's certainly some loud voices that aren't listening still on in a lot of different directions right now. But I'm starting to see some real shifts. I mean, and you know, like I for my job, I travel all over the country, all over the Midwest. I mean, that's why this podcast is called Flyover States. Is it's like I talk to yeah. so many different people all over a wide area, and I'm I, I, I you can feel the wind changing on certain things and. Um, I mean, there's only so long you can yell the same thing and say, well, that doesn't seem to be true. So why are we, why are we still pretending this? Uh, it's okay. We, we can work through these issues. They're not insurmountable. Yeah. Well, so I think I kind of want to start tying this up pretty quickly. Um, I guess I'll, I want to bring up one more subject just kind of to try to tie what we're talking about to automation. And, and that's, you know, I think we're still go- we're going to keep rolling through new industrial revolutions. And I think a lot of people say the information age was like the 90s through 2000s. Like, finally, everyone can have access to info instantly. You know, it's not letters. And I think that's still evolving now, like the implications of being able to say anything to anyone anywhere on Earth in this like not able i mean they try and trying to hide knowledge but it still doesn't really work um i think the next age is going to be kind of a somewhat instant the next mega uplifting in society could be caused by a near instant travel oh who knows where maglev is going to take us in the future yeah Um, but one thing i think that is for certain is we're going to be seeing um software integration that will allow us to check in when we're say, in the Uber on the way to the airport, mm-hmm. and then get on the plane immediately and then yes. take off again immediately. Uh, I think that's where we're going to be seeing the the, the big improvements. But um, as far as, you know, uh, cost per fleet, uh, cost per seat flight mile, um, those, those changes are going to be very incremental. Um, they're going to continue to... Uh, course iterate on uh engine design develop um you know materials that are lighter stronger uh and allow us to fly um further using the same amount of fuel um allow us to fly quieter um which would you know open up smaller airports to larger aircraft etc um but these challenges are not trivial and of course not. we're really bumping up against the physical limitations of what we're well yeah but if only there was some race of mammals that was incredibly good at solving problems with creativity oh, yeah. and science I'm, i guess I'm that's not, what i'm, I'm saying. not blackpilled at all on the on the future of humanity uh i see challenges uh i hope that we're better able to deal with those challenges in the future i think we're going to be better able to deal with those challenge with those challenges in the future um but we'll get there I think that's where I'm going to stop this then because, well, I have another guest to talk to, (laughs) to be honest. So there's kind of a hard cut off at a certain point, but perhaps we'll do this again. And when it comes to crypto, yep, my next, um, within a month, a broken silicon's coming out that's already been recorded with Stefan Levera, who is an Austrian economist and uh, 
you might enjoy that one then. But that's a whole other discussion that will, you know. I will say that, though, too, at the end, though, that I guess I, I should have said besides Bitcoin. <laughs> I think that, that that's the only other next thing that could possibly upheave us as much as instant information. But there are many disruptive technologies coming down the pipe. Yeah, only is the wrong word. Those are two that I see, though, that I'm confident in, I suppose, as would be able to have the same effect as instant information. But again, <laughs> let's uh, save that for another discussion. Is there anything you want to say at the end here? You know, plug or. Well, if you want to check out my channel, uh, again, my name is Simon Penrow. My channel is simply Penrow uh, on YouTube. Mm -hmm. I cover mostly philosophy, more philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm also going to be, I'm currently in the process of writing a, a book, uh, which is intended to be a counterpart to Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, but mm -hmm. focused on practical advice, and specifically directed to men who seek family life. I'm going to be making some videos, yeah. uh, possibly even a podcast series maybe in the future um it's going to be Do you know the title uh, of what this book on... will be at probably not oh, well, the only the reason i works. say that is it's this isn't youtube this is a podcast so people will go back and listen to this a year from now it's going to be the tw uh, the the quest for fatherhood it's going to be the oh. prima strategy guide for men okay well i think that's a good name so we at least know that yeah, I'm pretty much bankrupt, so they can't sue me for using that either. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to thank you for coming on, um, especially at what time is it where you are right now? Oh, it's midnight. Yeah, especially at this time. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. Good luck. I'll look I'll for that some book. Sleep. It's been All nice. Right. Thank you. And all these cuts Bye. and bruises are just stories of Massachusetts. Yeah, I thought that was pretty good. Having listened to it with a, doing a final pass five months after it was first recorded, and I do apologize to Simon again for how long this took to come out. Um, you know, is you know Simon Penrow. He's links in the description for those who want to look him up. Actually, let me say that too. You know, I will have more guests coming on, and I do intend to have an episode every few months or so, um, maybe more often if this takes off. That's up to you guys to spread the word of this podcast, by the way, to tell people in the comments on YouTube and you know on different podcast apps. Hey, did you know you had another podcast? That there's no, I'm not endorsing anyone who comes on. Well, really ever in the future. I'm not even really endorsing myself, except that I hope it's an entertaining discussion to listen to. You know, you don't have to agree with my guests. You don't have to like their stuff. You don't have to agree with everything I say. The only thing I do hope is that you enjoy the discussion, because that's really what Flyover States is about. And I will be bringing in people from quite different corners of the internet and political opinions, I believe, based on some people I'm talking to right now. So just keep that in mind. Open-mindedness, that's what I'm looking for here. And really, for being honest, selfishly keeping myself out of a bubble because, you know, however well any of these conversations go, I feel just forcing myself to talk to different people I normally wouldn't talk to all over the United States and all over the world. Well, just that little bit will hopefully stop me from becoming full of shit. And 
that us talking to each other can't hurt. You know, I, I really think a lot of the problems going on right now, the bigger ones, are coming from a lack of honest communication. And I hope I'm just 0.0001% of the solution. The following podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and select technical editing by Carbon Cry. You can find all of our information, including how to get a hold of us, at www.moreslawsdead.com. And if you are a fan and would like to send mail or other hardware, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead, P.O. Box 10468, Peoria, Illinois, 61612. And speaking of fans, without exaggeration, the patrons are solely responsible for the continued distribution of the content you just listened to. And so if you have some extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon Die Shrink and Loose Ends, and of course the Moore's Law is Dead Discord full of like-minded people who would love to meet you. I am one of them. The Discord is only at $1, and at higher tiers, you get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the back catalog of Flyover States podcast, thanks in the credits of videos and podcasts and other perks as well. And if you cannot afford to support us, please just share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media and Reddit. And give Broken Silicon and Flyover States a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. All of this really does help so much more than I think anyone realizes. If you'd like to advertise on the podcast or a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its fans supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Bootman, Carbon Cry, Dean, Benny Berlin, Justin Yunt, Thomas Rupp, I Love You, Lynn and Jim Bollocks, Joshua Alvin, Muhammad Al-Kawari, Frederick Lau, James Crasta, Justin Parrish, Zachary Martin, Terrence Herod, Brad Medlin, Phil S. Thyrister, The Ninth Dude, Greg Renegar, TSPCFS, Chrysantine, Night Rogue 77, The Mechanical Philosopher, Levo Kinkilo, Fatboy Diesel, Daniel Hyde, Matthew McMullan, Christoph Novak, Jack O'Neill, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, Sexy, VI Pass, Sadler Sadler, Isaiah Gosner, Alethros, Telos, Hey There's a Kitty, Greg T. Wanchuk, Jacob Barber, Exoti, Hector Santana, Matthew Lane, Paul Jones, Jan Rauner, Robert Ducks, Drita Full, Ali Robertson, Eric Jackson, Jonathan, Job, Evan Dingle, Dominic Cock, Stefan, Original Ross, Wayne, Sam MacArthur, Total Silo, Tol- Sol Connor, Michael Costa, Andrew S., Blake, Aaron Keith, Carrie Baldino, Endless Logan, San- Tom Sanfilippo, Justice Brennan, Ivan K, Trevor Powers, Garrick Scholl, Anya, Joshua Stavnis, Daniel Nishball, Franco Frederick, Hardware Numbers, Alex Carastillo, Dark Rain 2049, Leighton Perry, Mac, Carlos Valdez, Carnivore Bear, and Macdo 226.